Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Well, good morning, Quest. How are you doing? Uh, <clears throat> a few years ago, I was at a youth pastors conference in Atlanta, and um, little sidebar. I have kind of mixed emotions about these kinds of events because while I love to uh, develop myself as a youth pastor and, and get more professional uh, education in that space, I really dislike all of the people that go there because it's mostly like a bunch of middle-aged, mostly men with goatees trying to get all their recent information on their, on their eye gadget. And I just, I'm kind of convicted because that's a lot of what I look like and I don't like to be in that place. Um, but, uh, I was at this conference, and, um, and, and by the way, as most professional conferences are, it wasn't cheap. It was really expensive for me to go there. Uh, but I noticed there on the schedule for the day, there was a speaker that I was very excited to hear from. Everything that I had read from him and heard from him was something that was just refreshing and new, and I couldn't wait to hear what, what he was going to say. And, and uh, I'm not going to tell you who he is, because I'm about to pass judgment on him in a minute, but... Um, he, he is uh, a very forward thinker, and, and he's just challenging the status quo of all of the people around him. And, uh, and so I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait. I wanted to hear his brilliant insight into ministry and uh, scripture, and then the moment came. And there he was, in all of his glory, up on stage, juggling flaming clubs. Yeah, you don't understand it just as much as I didn't understand it at the moment. I was like, what is this guy doing? He's throwing fire around. And, and it was really awkward. And then he put the, these clubs down and, and started to uh, read from the scripture. And then as the words came out and he went on and on, I began to realize what he was doing. This man, this flame-juggling, Bible-holding man was reading to us the Sermon on the Mount, all of it, all 2,569-ish words of Jesus' famous sermon in its completion, and, uh, and then once he was done with it, he simply walked off stage. And the room was silent as they watched him walk to the back of the uh, conference center, take off his mic, and then exit the room. And it was like 15 seconds of like, what just happened and then the MC of the event stood up on stage and stubbored and stammered through stammered through some kind of uh, an explanation of gratitude for what just happened and and I have to be really honest with you I was like I'm angry you know I paid good money to come to this event and this guy just read to me the sermon on the mount and I'm pretty sure that everybody else there was really upset with him including the host of this conference because you know they're kind of going through the contract thinking he can't get away with this we just paid him two thousand dollars you know like what and, and I'm pretty sure that right now every time he goes to do a speaking engagement there's a little clause in there you know part of his rider is you will not speak the sermon on the mount only you will expound um, but then the more and more that I thought through what he had done, I began to realize that there probably uh, is no better sermon than that he could have given 
than what he preached from Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. See, this man, he, he's a leader in the area of finding sustainable practices for overcoming proper, uh, poverty. And, 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 and I'm sure that he just thought, well, I mean, Jesus said it best, so I'm going to just say it the way that he did. And um, so today, as we're talking about poverty and social justice, all I'm going to do is read to you the Sermon on the Mount and then step down. It's going to be good. Are you guys ready for this? I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. Some of you are like, oh, man, he's, that would be awesome because it won't be long. <laughs> oh, I'm juggling. You don't want to see me die. Uh, no, so, so we're, we're in this, serve, uh, this series called Frequently Asked Tough Questions. And I believe that this question about the church's responsibility regarding poverty is one of the most important that we can address. I do, and, and, and while I, I recognize that um, many of us, when we <laughs> look around, we don't see too much of the poverty that was is really around us. In fact, I was at a, a New Albany football game, uh, I think it was last week, and I was there with a friend, and I made the comment as I parked my car on Fodor Road to go to the, uh, to the game. I thought, you know, I can leave my keys in the ignition with the car running, doors open, windows down, and I guarantee you not a single person will look at my car and think to steal it. Because it's not a Maserati. And, and you know, like, uh, I don't know if you guys ever think that, but um, actually that's, that's really just a joke, and I know it's a little errant in thought. Um, but, uh, but really, I do want to paint a, a realistic picture of what poverty is actually like here in Franklin County. See, the truth is that over the past decade, poverty has been on the rise in and around us. Uh, I know you can't see this. I apologize for that. Um, I didn't test this slide out. But what it says is, if you can see right in the center of the state where, where Franklin County is supposed to be, um, it says that Franklin County has 17.4% of its population that lives in poverty. Okay, and, and uh, right there in the center, you see those two blue uh, counties, that's Delaware and Union. They are above the poverty. They're well above the, the poverty. But around us, 17.4% of the population is living in poverty. And statewide, it's 12 point, uh, nope, sorry, it's 14.8. See, this is a very real issue for us, especially considering that these numbers have been growing over the past decade and they, there's really showing no signs of reduction. Now, uh, just a minute ago, I said that um, my thought on having my car stolen from a New Albany football game is a little errant. I, I really believe that that's errant because I do not feel, and this is where I'm going to spend most of my time today, I do not feel that the idea of economic poverty uh, is really a broad enough definition uh, for our culture as it, when it comes to poverty. For example, uh, when I was speaking um, with a friend of mine from this church, uh, they had been at a neighborhood, a New Albany neighborhood uh, party, like a block party, and he was telling me of a conversation that he and some of the people were having, and he was shocked, just as I was as he's telling me this, that the, the majority of the conversation was, was people talking about how they've been engaging in swinging relationships with the other people in their neighborhood. And I'm thinking, what? You know, this is crazy. Just He's thinking, what? This is crazy. And then I started to think about this. You guys know what I'm talking about, right, when I say swinging? Yeah? No? I, I think you do. Okay. Um, 
What we're talking about, though, is, is people who may not be economically poor, but morally and relationally, they are in utter poverty, right? And, and then I begin to think about that kind of poverty and how it's perpetuated uh, through the families. You know, what, what are these people saying to their children and how is this going to keep getting worse and worse and worse? There is a need. Our community has a need. And I would suggest that we as the church have a responsibility to address this issue. Not just because we live in the community around Northeast Columbus, but because there is an, a clear call in Scripture for us to reach out to those who are in need. In fact, there's a recent poll from Pew Research Center that shows that this actually is the expectation, that the church is responsible to reach out. Um, in 2012, that's when this, uh, this poll was done, you'll notice uh, the second from the bottom, those, those uh, numbers there say 87, 77, and 90, those are people, percentage of people who say the church plays an important role in helping the poor and needy. That middle column, the 77%, I want to draw your attention to that one because those are people who were polled that have no affiliation at all with church. That means that those who claim to be atheists or agnostics, they still look to the church and say, you need to have a part in helping the poor and needy. Now, I would never say just because some people say that we should do it, uh, then we should. But here's the truth. There is a biblical argument for our engagement with the poor. In fact, as I was reading the words of Jesus, it became abundantly clear that Christ is not only calling all believers to a new life, but it's one of the greatest livable challenges that he ever made. And actually, I'm going to take that statement back a little bit. It's not so much a challenge as it is a command for us. Christ is telling his followers how to live. And as he does, it frightened the people that heard that message, just as it probably does for you and I. We're going to get deep into uh, the Sermon on the Mount in a moment. And as I read these words, it just rocks me to my core about, holy cow, this is a high, high calling. As I've been in preparation for this message and I've been reading the Sermon on the Mount and the different commentaries that speak about what Jesus said, there's been one book that probably has had the most significant um, voice among all of the others. And it's a book by E. Stanley Jones called The Christ of the Mount. Uh, I don't know if any of you are familiar with E. Stanley Jones, but he was a missionary in India. In fact, he was known as uh, the Billy Graham of India. He met with Gandhi, with Mother Teresa. He, he, he was serving the poor in very radical ways. And his thoughts on Jesus's most famous sermon have really shaped much of what I'm going to talk about today. Oh, and it's good news, too, that he graduated from Asbury College, which is the school that birthed my seminary, and so he's a great guy. Um, you should know that. Okay. East Stanley Jones. If you don't know him, look him up. He's a great man. Uh, now, here's what I love about the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm really just going to address the, the first 10 or 12 verses. Excuse me. Thank you, Josh Barnes, for my 
um, Cafe Americano, Carmel. Whew, bless my pastor. Um, anyway, uh, uh, I'm going to address the, the 10 or 12 verses that comprise the, the Beatitudes today because um, they really establish the core, uh, the centrality of the character of Christ, and then ultimately Christians as well. So what I love uh, about the sermon is that it really makes following God worthwhile. You see, uh, for the vast majority of my life as a believer in Jesus, I've had a little bit of tension uh, in, in about whether or not following Jesus was really even worth it. See, I grew up uh, believing that Christianity was cool because it was entertaining. Going to church, going to youth group was a ton of fun. I mean, it was a blast. All of the cool kids were there, and so when you were at church, you know, you were a part of something that was awesome and popular and all that kind of stuff. It was exciting. It was exciting. And there's a magnetism to this kind of Christianity. You, you know, you think of it like big churches doing big things with amazing budgets and then doing it all really well and then telling the story of God in just great ways. I mean, it's super cool. But see, deep down inside of me, um, and this has been really true ever since I've been a pastor, I've had this tension about how I should communicate the gospel of Jesus. Because on the surface, when you talk about it, and let's use today's context in the Sermon on the Mount, when you talk about it, it really is hard to read things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the persecuted. You know, that's not a message that's very entertaining, but it's central to what we call the good news. And so I wrestled with this idea, this tension, this fight within me. And I began to look deeper at what Jesus is telling us here in Matthew 5. And then I realized that there's nothing about this message that's easy, that's cheap, or that's showy. But ultimately, ultimately, it is a gospel that is truly worth living. And when I think down, deep down about what matters the most to me, I think of the deep, meaningful relationships that are not easy to come by. I think of the things that have challenged me the most, and those are the things that I'm very grateful for. And I think this is probably a universal truth for us, right? The things that matter to us the most are the things that really take a lot of work, work, not just the things that are exciting or fun. Following Jesus. Following Jesus is a journey that requires us to really consider how we live. And the Sermon on the Mount will do the same. In fact, it will make us uncomfortable both with who we are and how we are living. But honestly, I don't want to live for something that is anything less than what Christ calls us to. The Sermon on the Mount is a call. I'm about to read the, the first 10, 12 verses of this in the Beatitude. And as I do, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about how you feel when you hear these statements of Jesus. How does it challenge you in your life? Let me, let me read these words. Matthew 5, 1 through 12. The words are on the screen. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. Let me, let me just pray for us as we get started here. Jesus, Jesus, we thank you for your life. We thank you that you lived in such a way that we can model it and live in the same. We thank you for your sacrifice, for how you surrendered all for our sake. I pray today that as we open up this word and think about what you said that we might be challenged and transformed to the core of who we are so holy spirit come speak to our minds and hearts pray these things in your name amen so this text is rich (laughs) it's challenging and it's winsome And, and when you hear those words, don't you just think to yourself, you know, I want to be like that. You know, pure in heart and, and a peacemaker and merciful. Those things are exciting. They're fun. They're, they're winsome. They're great. But then there are some of those other phrases in there, right, that are hard to get around. Like, I want to be persecuted. <laughs> no. I want to be poor in spirit. <sighs> These are some heavy things, and so let me, let's just dive into this text and consider exactly what Jesus is calling his followers to. And, and uh, let me first point out that it seems to me that, that there is a triadic structure to the Beatitudes. Um, by the way, this portion of text is known as the Beatitudes. It's from the Latin word beatus. I don't, I don't actually know if that's how you say it, but I'm going to say it that way, um, which translates to blessed. Okay, so um, these are the blessed people, right, the Beatitudes. So there's, there's this um, triadic structure uh, as such. There, there are three sets of three blessed people groups. And with, within each of the three, there are these critical um, ideas that when they're tied together make all the most sense, but when when they're pulled apart, it kind of it breaks the whole thing down. So, so ultimately you have the poor in spirit, those who mourn, and the meek in the first triad. Then you have those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, and the pure in heart in the second. And then the final triad, we've got peacemakers, the persecuted, and those who are joyful in the midst of insult. So all in all, each of these beatitudes or blessings reflect the type of character that followers of Christ should exhibit. And, and this is a tall order. I mean, don't get me wrong. This is, this is difficult stuff. And Jesus begins here with these statements in the beatitudes because he knows 
That if he goes on to tell them how to live before he tells them what kind of character they should have deep within them, then they risk living out a shallow and surface faith that ultimately is bound by works and legalism. So Jesus begins at the very center of man. Who are the people that Jesus says that we need to be in order to truly serve? They are the poor in spirit, the mourning, the meek, the ones that hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, and those who rejoice in the midst of persecution. And if you look at this list with the eyes of a legalist, I mean, it's frightening. It's daunting. It's appalling. It's it's hard to read because there's no limit to the duty that is on this Christian. But if you think about everything that Christ calls his people to here in the Sermon on the Mount, then you realize that because he already lived it, we too can live it if we strive to be just like him. So then who are we supposed to be? What does the character of a follower of Christ look like? And and I think probably the best place to start is to deal with this word blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? I know that there's a lot of baggage around that word, so let me define it for us and, and, and just kind of do away with that baggage. By definition, it's a person who is not limited by or subject to the circumstances of life or death, but instead has an outlook on life that is free from fate and free in faith. In other words... A follower of Jesus who is blessed is not controlled by the fate of this world, but rather conformed to the liberating trust discovered as heirs in Christ. Our wholeness, our personhood, and our identity is centered in the family of God. That's what it means to be blessed. All right, so let's look at these first three blessed statements together. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, and the meek. And... and this first one, the poor in spirit. I, Jesus takes like the hardest one and he starts with it. And I, I don't know, it just cuts us to the core, right? And I, I love what E. Stanley Jones, how he defines in his book, The Christ on the Mount, what poor in spirit really means. He says it's, it's, it's a renunciation of self. Okay, Scripture is clear that when Jesus calls us to give up something, really what he's doing is he's calling us to surrender ourselves uh, to him. And But when we do that, we, we are truly free. See, if we give up our desires, our hopes, and our dreams, and we surrender them to Jesus, then what else can really be taken from us, right? You can't steal anything from a person who surrendered all of that stuff unto Jesus. There's nothing more that can be taken. And that is how we live in freedom when it comes to following Christ. That's a really powerful statement when you think about it. And I just sit there and think, wow, God, like, okay, you could have asked me to give up all my money. You could have asked, you know, to give up all my possessions. But no, you just said, give it all to me. You know, he starts off pretty serious here. What he says is, give me all of you. The Apostle Paul calls this becoming a slave to God. It's a total renunciation of self. Now, I did say that this message is livable. Um, And and what I think about that is that as we go along following God, the more that we let go of, then the more that we realize that God will take care of us. If we surrender it to him, 
He will cover us. He will look out for us. And it becomes easier than to give up more. But it's a process. It's a journey of surrendering everything to Him. Now Jesus, He's not ready to end there. So this is where Jesus then begins to speak to us about our mission as His followers. And this is when He says, Blessed are those that mourn. This is like the Christ that mourned over the sins of the world. Sin, I believe, is really the beginning of poverty. And Jesus calls us to allow our hearts to break for the brokenness of this world in the same way that he did. So this mourning idea comes from the Old Testament understanding of how prophets mourn for the sins of the people of God. I think of Jeremiah who wept in lamentations for the Israelites. The emotion... The mourning comes from the recognition that life is not the way it could or should be. And ultimately, it's a mourning that leads to action. See, coupled with being poor in spirit or self-renunciation, one begins to realize that we are called not to look out for our own interests because we've surrendered those unto God, but rather for the interests of those who are poor and broken, even if it means self-sacrifice to the point of personal disadvantage. Whoa. And then this triad is completed with blessed are the meek. Because it's only here that a self-deprived, empathetic person can truly muster enough strength to carry on. You know, I think often when we think of this word meek, we, we think the definition means weak, right? You know, oh, if that person's meek, then they're also weak. And I, I think that's a terrible definition because truly, meek ones are the ones who can take suffering with patience, right? Isn't that what a meek person is? It's, it's a person who, who can handle threats from opposition with self-control. It's a powerful person that can bear the weight of trial the way that a meek man or woman can. So then why are these three... Why are these three blessed statements together? Self-sacrifice, outward sorrow for the world, bound together by the strength to withstand those burdens. It's so that decision and action can take place. I mean, isn't this the very picture of Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior, who endured torture and death all on our behalf to rid us from the very poverty of sin? I mean, I can't think of a, a better picture of what this first triad of blessed statements is other than Christ. And then I start to think, what will this look like for us as a church? Will we resemble a beating heart? That's how I think of it. A beating heart. In one motion, we beat outward uh, for all of the people that we're mourning for. In another motion, we're beating inward as we're renouncing ourself. We're beating back and forth while patiently bearing with the sinful, broken, and poor so that we may know what it... So, I'm sorry. So that they may too know what it's like to be blessed. And see, here's the thing, church. If we do this, if we surrender ourselves unto God, if we mourn for those, then we will experience heaven right now 
We will inherit the earth. And we too will be comforted. See, this is the promise that Jesus gives to us in this blessed statement. And so we continue on then to the second triad. First, as we crave for righteousness, craving that hunger, that thirsting, it's a very uh, emotional feeling right there. We crave for righteousness, but it's coupled by mercy. See, E. Stanley Jones says that righteousness unmodified by mercy is hard, unlovely, pharisaical, and sour-faced. But mercy needs the correction of righteousness. Without it, it's mushy and loose. Together, however, they are powerful and sweet, and ultimately they create the pure in heart. Those who are pure have a passion for righteousness and a compassion for men. And in that passion and compassion, they see God. It's self-sacrifice and vicarious suffering, a thirst for righteousness with tender mercy. In both of these movements so far, Jesus has called us to a life that is inwardly pure and outwardly focused. Do you see that? Do you see what he's doing? Self-renounced and mourning for the world, righteous and merciful, strong enough to carry the weight of sin, but so pure and undivided that it's unwilling to cower and become impoverished itself. Jesus is calling his followers, his church, us. To meet the needs of the poor and broken in the very same way that he did. Now, mind you that, that his mission was about reconciliation. See, Jesus was a lovingly aggressive uh, peacemaker. And two, we are called to be peacemakers. And in this call, for us to bring the peace not only um, means not only between man and man, but also between man and God. For it's in that kind of peace that we destroy poverty at its root. When people begin to live out what Scripture says about money, about relationships, about joy, about marriage, about family, well then poverty is diminished in those areas of a person's life. There's, there's so much hope for uh, people than what a program might, brings, might, a program might bring to them. But just as Christ came and his followers come, when we come, we come to change the lifestyles of the community around us. The morality, the mercy, the grace, the love, the truth of Scripture, as it permeates the lives of people, brings wealth. (laughs) You know, wealthy relationships, wealthy families, wealthy marriages. It relieves the stress of finances when we practice the things that the Bible teaches to us about debt. On and on, on and on, we can talk about how peace comes to the lives of those who live for Christ. And it's our responsibility, church, to bring this to our community. And believe me, when we do, we will be met with persecution. Christ promises us this. But Jesus says, blessed are you when you're persecuted. Now, I personally can't claim to desire this. Like, oh, persecute me. I don't want that. I'm sure you don't either. But a person who can remain a peacemaker in the midst of persecution truly carries great authority with them. See, I had a seminary teacher uh, tell me once that any ministry that doesn't experience conflict 
is not really doing what it should be doing. See, we come with a subversive message. Jesus came with a subversive message. It challenges any lifestyle that does not honor God. But any person who can pursue peace in the midst of persecution and do it with joy, well, they will change a culture of poverty. The quest that we're on is one that's not easy, it's not short-lived, but it is livable. And at its roots, it's designed to make the communities around us better and more like the kingdom of God. And we're called to it. It's not right for us to wait for the government to fix all of the problems of poverty around us. Yes, absolutely, we should participate in the democratic process, uh, but that's not nearly enough for us. In fact, I would suggest that it's not Christian of us simply to rely on the government. We must act. It's a part of the very makeup of the Christian to bring this blessing of Christ into our community. And I get it. I mean, I understand it. Following Jesus as he calls us in these beatitudes is not easy, nor is it immediate. We, we won't be perfect right as we start. But I believe that if we, and I mean this about me too, because I struggle with reading this and how it's going to affect my life, but I believe that if we live out these principles, then we will be blessing our community in such a way that will change the culture of poverty that surrounds us. I um, I was online and I found a list of 50 some odd things that we can do, uh, just simple little things that we can do to change the, the culture of poverty around us, to be a blessing, to answer the prayers of our community, to be the church ultimately to our community. I'm going to list off um, just a couple of things, 20 actually, um, that, that we can do. And um, I'll submit this online later so that you can, um, you can go through it later. Uh, but some of these are easy. Some of them are hard. Uh, write some of these down. If one sticks out to you, say, I think I may try that this month or this week or this year. Number one, ask your pastor if someone on your church's sick list would like a visit to join an AA meeting and befriend someone there. Adopt a child. Mow your neighbor's grass. You can come do that for me anytime. Um, volunteer to tutor a kid at your local elementary school and then get to know their family. Grow your own tomatoes and then give them away. Ask a small group in your community to meet regularly, regularly for intercessory prayer. Build a wheelchair ramp for someone who's homebound. Look up the closest registered sex offender in your neighborhood and try to befriend them. I never said this was going to be easy. Throw a birthday party for a prostitute. When you pay your water bill, pay for your neighbor's water bill as well. I promise you they'll let you do it. Invest your money in a micro-lending bank. Give your winter coat away to someone who really needs it and then go to a thrift store to get your next winter coat. Go down a line of parked cars and pay for the meters that are expired and then leave little notes of nice, niceness on those cars. Write to one social justice organizer or leader each month just to encourage them. Go through a local thrift store and drop $1 bills in random pockets of the clothing that's being sold. 
Experiment with creation care by going fuel-free for a week, by riding your bike, by carpooling, or by walking to work. Try only reading books written by female authors or people of color for an entire year. Go to an elderly home and get a list of folks who don't get any visitors and visit them each week by telling them stories, reading the Bible together, or playing board games. Buy only used clothes for a year. Here's one that's going to challenge a bunch of us in New Albany. Cover up all the brand names or at least the ones that do not reflect the upside-down economics of God's kingdom and commit to only being branded by the cross. Join a Kairos ministry at a prison close to you and remember that Jesus said that he will meet you right there. Or submit to help um, some of the men building this. I forgot what Joe said that we were going to do. Yeah, serve the crab trees. There are things all over the place. And I know that I've got at least 30 more of these that we can be doing. Simple little things. Simple little things that require us to get uncomfortable. And ultimately, doing these kinds of things, they mean that we're not going to have the kind of lifestyle that we're used to seeing around us. But it also means that we get to live out the way that we're called to by Jesus Christ. See, we're called to a lifestyle that is different. But in that difference, we're able to change our community and to change the culture around us. And we make this place a better place for people to exist, a place where relationships are rich, where marriages are blessed, where homes are blessed, where finances are blessed, where people don't have to live alone, where people are cared for and where they can get an education and they can begin to live better lives. See, we have the responsibility to be a part of the solution. And I realize this is not an easy message to digest. It's uncomfortable. And and I hate to think even what this means for me and my family. The truth is that ever since Jesus spoke these words, it's been challenging the culture around him because people read this and they think, what else do I have to do? This seems like a t- bunch of tough work. But that's not what Christ meant for it. He meant this to be a simple message. He's saying, live your life in the same way that I lived mine. And if you keep me at the center of it, then you will start to do these things Naturally, you will live this out without much effort. But if anything else is on the throne of your lives, anything, our children, our money, our security, our sex, our status, anything than what Christ has called us to, this will be incredibly difficult, if at all possible, for us. Does that mean that we have to give up loving all that other stuff? No. It just means that we can't have those things on the throne of our lives. That's the only place that Christ can sit. And this call is not something that needs to be completed overnight. We can be a part of loving others in small pieces at first. Small ways done for the right reason. And over time, we begin to look more the way that Christ has called us to. And that's my challenge to you. We're going to spend some time answering some questions. I don't know if you submitted questions throughout this uh, 
uh, message. I hope you did. Uh, but I'm going to invite up a couple of folks to help me field questions. Uh, Dr. Mary Lutz is going to come up. Mary is, uh, she is the director of the Columbus branch for Asbury Seminary. And uh, over the past couple of messages, as I've been answering these questions, Mary has come up to me afterwards and said something that was deeply profound and helpful. And I've used it each time. And so I thought, I'm just going to get her up here so she can say it to you first. Because uh, I usually mess up everything that you say. So uh, Mary's here. Please help me welcome Mary. And I also want to invite up uh, Scott Marrier. Scott is not only an elder here at the church, but he's also mm-hmm. the director of WARM, the Westerville Area Resource Ministry. He is um, he spent his life dedicated to mm-hmm. ministering to the poor. And uh, he knows so much more about this than probably anybody else here in our church. And so I'm, I'm glad Amen. to have Scott here helping us. So please welcome Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah? We'll wait for Greg to unmute my microphone. I could take a hint. Okay. These, uh, there's actually a couple of questions that were phrased pretty similarly. Um, so I'm going to show them both to you. But how do we determine when charitable donations have become an enabler to recipients? Is it harmful to continue to support someone if there are no changes in the harmful behavior? And then this one kind of piggybacked it pretty well. Should we want to know the reasons people are in poverty before helping? What if it's drugs, laziness, et cetera? Would we be enablers? Those are excellent questions. And I, I'm going to defer this to Scott because I know that you deal with this on a very regular basis. And Wow. Um, Okay, so I, I guess the first one deals with, can I see the first question again? Yep. I think the first one um, does, um, how do we determine the impact enabler uh, to recipients? Um, and, I, and I think uh, one of the ways I would respond to that is look to those who are providing those services because um, they should be transparent and they should be accountable in our business. They talk about outcomes. Outcomes are real measurements. Um, there's mm-hmm. outputs and outcomes um, in, in, in our ministry service, how many people we feed, how many we serve, how much of your money goes to administration to make those things happen, how much goes to programs that actually helps people, how much goes to things like fundraising and overhead and those types of things. And it, and it takes some operational expenses to get those things done. But any notable ministry will be very transparent with that information and very forthcoming with that information. And you should evaluate it because we're called to be good stewards. At the same time, um, you know, the impact measuring uh, the transformation of people's lives, whether it's material poverty or whether it's our own spiritual brokenness, Mm -hmm. is sometimes a very difficult um, metric Mm -hmm. to, to narrow down on if you think about your own pains and your own suffering. How do you say, well, I'm over that? So sometimes, too, I think we over-evaluate and we underperform. We say, well, show me the proof and I'll support you. And Jesus' message is, is completely different than that. He's saying surrender. Uh, our responsibility as stewards is, is to share and to give what he has entrusted to us. Others will be held accountable on how they handle that to bring about how that's used. That's right. But first and foremost, it's our responsibility to participate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I think sometimes we overanalyze, and that's a defense mechanism of ourselves Mm -hmm. to say, I I don't really want to give. So prove to me, are you worthy of that? And, you know, if we get into that conversation, let's talk about the doctrine of grace. Are any of us worthy of the grace that God has given us? So I I think we have to keep that mindful. And then, you know, what is this aspect of um, when is an enabling? There's a good book out. Uh, that I would encourage you. I don't remember the author's name, but it says, um, 
when giving herds, you know, when helping herds. Mm -hmm. And it talks about this enablement. And, and what I would do is I would encourage you to think deeply about some of the impacts that we're trying to cause and what are some of the larger ramifications of that as well. One example, I was uh, just traveling with an individual who has an outreach to uh, Haiti, and they are doing um, economic unemployment and or employment and sustainability in foreign countries. And so he uh, was aware of this um, this outreach where a church was collecting 25,000 jars of peanut butter to help the people in Haiti. Now, on the front end, that sounds really good, doesn't it? Unfortunately, uh, this fellow is in contact with farmers in Haiti who, who, who grow peanuts mm -hmm. to produce peanut butter. Mm -hmm. He also knew the manufacturer of peanut butter in Haiti that supplied jobs and, and food and nutrition to those in Haiti. 25,000 jars of peanut butter represented one-fourth of this individual's annual gross sales wow. of peanut butter in Haiti. So did those 25,000 jars of peanut butter really help Haiti, or did it really deter? Mm -hmm. You know, there it was an almost an enablement or an entitlement versus creating jobs and goods and services in that country. Mm -hmm. And so I think as individuals, we have to take into context that scripture that says, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Yes. Let's be really discerning with how we use that, but let's do it graciously and, and effectively. Did I you know, do that? And, and none of us want to see people continue on drugs or laziness and those types of things. Would we be enablers? But um, I think about myself. And if I had to be cleaned up before Jesus died for me, mm -hmm. We'd all be lost. Amen. Mm -hmm. and, and so, again, um, um, you know, are they worth our support? I would just say that God is worthy of our praise, and as we cooperate with him, we do that. I think there's one other aspect of, of accountability that I would just want to touch on, and that is um, this, this idea of who gets the glory. Mm -hmm. You know, people often Amen. say to us, well, don't you get taken by some people? They come in and they tell you this compelling story, and you help them, and they don't really need it. Well, the answer is, Sure. Probably 5 to 8% of the time, we'll get duped into helping somebody that really might not need help. But you know what? If I'm going to make a mistake, I'm going to err on the side of generosity and charity. Absolutely. Because it's not up to me to judge. And the judgment day, I'm going to stand before God and he's going to say, what did you do? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say, well, I tried to be a good steward of your stuff. And I'm sure I got taken care of, but I'll let you be the judge of that. And he'll say, that's exactly right. So if somebody is taking advantage, um, that's between them and God. Yep. And that's God's opportunity to judge. Thank you, Scott. Sure. Very good. Um, this one, I like what this question kind of mm -hmm. covers. It seems pretty simple, but how many times do we have to help the poor before they help themselves? And, and I wanted to ask this. This came in uh, between the services. What I like about this question is I think it, it shows a calling for an action step. You know, like a longing for an action step, maybe some of those personal measurables that Scott was speaking of. But mm -hmm. uh, how could you maybe elaborate on that question? If I were to elaborate, this is a difficult question, I think, to answer. Um, and it does tie in a little bit to what Scott was talking about just a moment ago. But I think this also comes back in with that question of the meek and um, suffering with patience and, and being patient in the midst of, of what you're observing and experiencing with someone else. But, but we are called to be that way, to be patient, to keep serving, to keep surrendering, to keep helping, to keep blessing, uh, even when people over and over and over and over and over and over and over again keep messing up. Um, and 
Scott's last statement, I think, is so great because um, really, in truth, and this is something that Scott said in the last service that I thought was really helpful, uh, this is not an, an us-them type of deal, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we are all broken. We are all in poverty. We are all in need of a Savior and this same kind of mercy and grace. And so what we would hope we might receive in, um, in the patience that Christ offers to us, mm-hmm. I think is the very same kind of patience that we need to give to someone else and keep mm-hmm. serving them, keep blessing them, keep helping them. It sounds a lot like the question, how many times do we need to forgive? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how many times have we been forgiven? About 20 years ago, I read a book called Margin uh, by Dr. Richard Swenson. And in that book, and it had a profound impact on my worldview, he stated that, and this is, again, 20 years ago statistics, that we spend more on trash bags in America than the individual gross national product of 90 countries in the world. Trash bags. That's pretty powerful. And we know from what Jeremy shared today and and what Scott has encouraged us to do that you can't exhaust an inexhaustible God. He owns it all. And we are privileged to be stewards of the grace of God, like Paul from Ephesians 3. And we know, according to Isaiah 55, that God's ways aren't our ways and his thoughts aren't our thoughts. He owns it all. So the challenge for me, the challenge for us as individuals, as a community of faith, is to recognize that in God's economy, my abundance is his provision for others. So then the question is, what does that look like for each of us? Very good. I have uh, one last one that we have time for. This one is uh, phrased pretty uniquely. Um, Does lumping rich people who are morally bankrupt in with those who are actually in financial poverty give the church an excuse to not engage with those outside our comfort zone? Does it get us off the hook, so to speak, so that we don't feel obligated toward radical generosity and sacrificial giving? I think if I had to put that in my own words, it's, if, you know, if the people we are surrounded with in our community aren't economically poor, does that get us off the hook for serving those who are economically poor? Do we have to seek those people out, per se? Uh, I would say absolutely not. Uh, I think that um, uh, moral bankruptcy leads to financial poverty. And, uh, and poverty in all kinds of other ways. And so we must address that issue because we're called to it just as much as we are called to any other kind of poverty that someone may experience. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's, I mean, uh, we must step in is what I read. So. Yeah. John 12 reminds us that if we are faithful to lift him up, God up, Jesus up on this earth, that he will draw people to himself. We need to do our part and trust that he'll do his part. I think the context of uh, Jerry's, Jeremy's message, um, he gave us a rich deposit today that addresses this. First of all, the answer to this question is, in a single word, no. Mm-hmm. We're not off the hook. Yep. Christ in us is the hope of glory, it tells us in Colossians. And so it is through his grace reflected and operated through us that we're going to bring about and see transformation in our community those who are morally bankrupt, those who are relationally bankrupt, those who are materially bankrupt, Christ's provision is enough for all of us. Thank you guys yeah, very much sure. for helping out. Um, two things I want to say, and then we're going to uh, spend some time uh, worshiping as we close today. First, 
on your way out, the ushers are going to give you uh, a piece of paper that is a really great just reminder of um, the types of poverty that exist around us in our world. And uh, it's a resource that, uh, that actually Scott brought back from a conference he was at this past week. And I think it's beautiful. It's a quiz uh, for us to take to see, is this true, is this false? And on the back is a fact sheet uh, that shows us really and truly how much this poverty really affects us. Uh, the second thing that I want to say to you is um, as we uh, continue to worship, use this moment uh, to take that first step to become poor in spirit, to surrender yourself to God and just worship his throne as, as we just can honor him for everything that he is here in this place right now this morning. So I want to challenge you guys to, to worship with us. We are going to have Q&A. I don't know if you guys were posting questions to Dusty throughout this, uh, but I want to invite some folks up here uh, to help me field these questions because uh, I'm not the best at uh, on-the-spot Q&A. And so I've invited Mary Lutz to come on up. Mary Lutz is, uh, she directs the Columbus Center for Ashland Seminary, and she is a brilliant thinker, and virtually everything that she has said to me between services during the uh, FATQ series I've used, and so I just figure it'd be good for her to come up and just say it straight to you. So this is Mary Lutz. Please welcome her. And... I've also invited Scott Marrier to come up. Scott is the director of WARM, the Westerville Area Resource Ministry. He's an expert in this field as it relates Mm -hmm. to poverty and social justice. And uh, I do believe that he's probably going to be able to answer the vast majority of the questions. So um, (laughs) That's a a setup, right? (laughs) Yeah. So please, please welcome Scott. All right, panel. You ready? Yeah. Here we go. Do you feel that the government puts too much red tape around churches uh, to serve the poor? Or maybe, Scott, maybe you can speak from this from a warm perspective, if there's any hoops you have to jump through politically to really serve. Um, you know, my answer is no. I don't, I don't think they do. It doesn't matter what the government puts up. There should be no restrictions on the church to follow what Jesus has told us to do. Amen. Um, on, um, certainly we honor our government. We honor the rules of our land. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a time when, and Jeremy referred to this, as the moral responsibility, the moral obligation that we have as Christians to proclaim the truth. And at times that might stand in conflict to what is politically correct mm-hmm. or what's deemed by the culture currently to be cl- politically correct. So there's a certain point in our faith that we have to stand for that which we know is true that which is biblical. And and I think we can do that without breaking the law, okay? Um, you know, we're, we're not into being rebellious that way. So I don't think there is too many restrictions. Um, but I'm, you know, I look at it as the glass half full. There's plenty of opportunity, you know, to serve. And Jeremy's list of 20 of a 1,000 things, of, of the things that we can do, are really practical. Um, I do believe that, you know, there are things like advocacy, that we can also have a stronger voice in, and that's um, not necessarily storming the gates of the state house or the federal government. As a matter of fact, I guess the government's still closed. Is it open yet? Not yet. I'm not too sure. So I don't want to wait on the government to do the things that God has called the people of God, the church, to do. We need to be living like Christ every day in relation to that. But um, I'm talking about influencing people in your sphere of influence, 
which might be your state representative or might be your city council member or might be the mayor or might be others, other people in prominent influential positions that have a say in what happens in our, in our, in our legislation and in our government and those types of things. And so, you know, maybe you have a position or a job that, that does advocacy, you know, very publicly, but most of the time it's done in private conversations relationally, one-on-one, to influence that which we should be doing in taking care of, um, in this case, the poor with the social justice. But beyond that, um, Jeremy talked about the spiritually bankrupt, the spiritually poor. And that has a huge implication of what we're talking about that is also this estimate of, uh, or this idea of justice that we need to be sensitive to. There's, um, because people going to hell, being separated from God eternally is spiritual bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And we clearly have a mandate, a clear direction from God on what our responsibility with that is. And so that might be being a friend or bringing a friend to Christ. Mm-hmm. Amen. As simple as that. Good. Thanks. Very good. That's good. Thank you, Scott. All right. This one, actually, this question was kind of brought up at our um, young adults group earlier this uh, week. Um, my job keeps me from openly uh, professing my faith in the workplace. What's the best way for me to serve those I work with who are in that spiritual need that Scott was speaking of? This is this is a great question, and um, I I actually don't know the best way to answer this because there are some legal issues surrounding it. But I do know that in uh, later in our series, we're going to deal with this question specifically. Uh, I think it's uh, three or four weeks from now. And, and so I'm, I'm excited to, to hear about that. But I do think that um, even in the midst of our workplace, uh, there are things that we can do which are not necessarily illegal. Um, where we can we can love people, we can support them, and we can do it in the name of Christ without actually professing His name, and, and I think that's that's important for us to do. Can I? Um, yes. St. Francis of Assisi um, is is internationally known, and his feast day actually was um, a week from last Friday, and he simply said it this way: Preach the gospel always, and use words when you have to. Right. And I guess uh, to follow up on that, um, I'm going to put that back up on the screen real quick. Um, I found it kind of an interesting question to ask. I mean, I know I'm only uh, 25, but to be asked that question, and I've been working in ministry for, you know, the last three or four years, it was kind of a strange, you know, boundary uh, for me, I suppose. Mary, how would you feel about that same question as to somebody who's maybe going to Ashton, who's going through seminary, but working in a, uh, you know, in a secular realm while they're going to school? How would you answer that question? It's free to pray for people, yeah. you know, and and most people will gladly allow you to pray with them and for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the last one I have is, are we called to vote in care for the poor politically? I don't know if I understand that question. Does Do you guys have a... Who sent that in? Can you explain it? I'm just kidding. This is anonymous. <laughs> um, if, if I understand the context of the question, vote in care, uh, probably refers to some of the health care things that we're talking mm-hmm. about today, often called Obamacare. Um, the Affordable Care Act is what we're addressing. Um, in our state, uh, we're talking about Medicaid, and should um, Medicaid be more expanded and available for those? Um, you know, maybe I can put it this way. We oftentimes see ourselves as haves and have-nots. Mm-hmm. And it all depends on who you're comparing yourself to. 
Now, if sitting here in New Albany we're comparing ourselves to Les Wexner, we would probably say Les is one who has, and I am one who has not. But, you know, I, I would challenge you to think about it this way. We, we live in a country with haves and have-mores. If you're poor in America, our poor are the world's rich. One-third of the population that exists on the planet today lives on less than a dollar a day. Um, poverty is described in America for a family of four of an economic threshold of about $22,000. America's poor are the world's rich. So I guess it depends on what level you're comparing yourself to in relation to haves and have-nots. But I would say that because we're a domestic audience here and we all live in the United States and citizens of this great country, um, think about it as haves and have-mores. We all have. If you live in Westerville, Ohio, you have access to one of the best library systems in the nation. It's award-winning. Our Parks and Recreation Department were in... Um, we're in Houston just last week and received a national award for the quality of parks and recreation that we have available in Westerville, Ohio. You have some things. We have some things. We have some of the best road services, some of the best fire and safety protection services that exist um, in the world. We have one of the best school systems that exists in the state. If you're a citizen of, of Gahanna, New Albany, Reynoldsburg, um, Westerville, Johnstown, any of these surrounding areas, Columbus, um, we have an abundance of resources. Now, there are certainly people that have less and, 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 and want to work towards having more. And, and so we can help them in relation to doing that. Um, you know, politically, d d the, the tax thing and, and all those types of things and how that's regulated, that's really difficult. But think about it this way. If the church, if we as the church universally just follow the biblical mandate of tithing, we would not need Social Security in our country. We would not need Medicaid mm -hmm. or Medicare, yeah. unemployment, or any of those things. Why? Because there is such an abundance that literally the church would be able to handle all of those things as acts of support and charity. So, and I think the other thing that sometimes, uh, and Jeremy referred to this, is we hold on a little tightly. Uh, the biblical aspect of ownership is stewardship. God owns it all. I mean, I'm just, I just think it's really cool of him to say, just give me back 10% to use. But when we think about it, he owns it all. What we have all comes from God materially, relationally, and spiritually. It's the whole doctrine of grace. And so, um, you know, when we hold on to it a little too tightly, there's sometimes when a political issue calls me and challenges me in relation to my financial aspect or my narrow worldview, um, then I submit that to the Lord and say, Lord, please pray for me on how you want me to use your money. How do you want me to use your grace that you've given us? And again, this aspect of when we're talking about poverty, oftentimes we narrow our focus on this materiality because that's what gets all the attention. But I would say that we should wake up as Americans because our country is morally bankrupt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We have a greater spiritual issue than we have a material issue in our world. And that clearly falls as the responsibility for us as Christ followers, mm -hmm. as those of his disciples, to simply do something about that. Yeah. And that's not rocket science. It's the things that Jeremy talked about today. Mm -hmm. Sacrifice, surrender, mm -hmm. obedience, love, worship, 
relational support and encouragement. Yeah. I know Mary has two things she wants to add. Two things real quick. Um, If you read Dr. Richard Swenson's book, Margin, published about 20 years ago, at that time in America, we spent more every year on trash bags than the individual gross national product of 90 different countries in the world. That's right. That's embarrassing. In Deuteronomy 15, before the Israelites entered the promised land, they were told to share generously with their neighbors. In Acts 4, in the early church, they grew because they loved one another extravagantly. And in between, the poor widow gave all that she had, trusting on God to provide for her needs. And Mary anointed Jesus, his feet, with costly perfume and wiped it with her hair. Our call is to live and love extravagantly so that we make God's name great. Right. That's good, Mary. Yeah, and I I think that's a beautiful close. Thank you both for helping us out. Yes. Uh, I think that's a beautiful close, Mary, for really this challenge that we have. As the church, Christ calls us uh, to to serve, uh, to care for, uh, to be the ones who are um, sacrificing everything that we have in order that they can become blessed. And, and that, that really is the mandate that we're given. Continue to worship. Uh, we've got one more song, but I want to let you know if you need prayer, uh, there are, um, are going to be people over here who will pray with you in the prayer pods. And uh, so anything that you need, whether it's regarding today's service or anything else, I encourage you to go over there and, and receive prayer. And I just want to encourage you just to challenge you uh, to be a blessing as you go out, to, to make sure that the community around you is a better place because of how you live for Christ today and this week. Thank you, church. It's been a blessing to be with you today. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at go to quest.org.